0: Let's be honest, ladies. We've all struggled to live up to the standards of the Proverb 31 woman and then blamed ourselves when we fell short. But I'll bet you never thought that your imperfections might get you killed. Hey, everybody, welcome to The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison, and I'm going to bring you another story from the world of true crime, and then we're going to see where it fits in with our faith. Let's join forces to answer what I think is every Christian's calling and that's to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. We'll talk about a very practical way to do just that after we dive into today's case. This is Season 3, Episode 34. Our book this week is The Good Wife, The Shocking Betrayal and Brutal Murder of a Godly Woman in Texas, and it's by Clint Richmond. It tells the story of Penny Skaggs, A woman dedicated not just to modeling herself after that Proverbs 31 woman, but to becoming her. There's a whole lot going on in this case, so let's dive right in. When Penny Early married Roger Skaggs in the spring of 1961, she dedicated herself to supporting Roger's career and taking care of his every need. Even so, there were stresses and rough patches in the marriage, like we all experience. Penny decided she would attend a workshop on creating and nurturing a Christian marriage. She was so impressed by the idea of helping women restore their marriages by adhering to Old Testament teachings that she began to teach the class herself. Roger was doing well enough to support Penny and their adopted daughter without Penny needing a job outside their home. So she set out to create the perfect house, perfect family, and perfect marriage, and to teach others to do the same. She and Roger taught a couple's Sunday school class at their church in Austin, Texas, but Roger was annoyed by what he saw as the church's constant pressure for members to fund more and more building campaigns. But they both fell in step with the hardline teaching that wives must be subservient to their husbands in all matters. In her classes, Peggy told her eager students that wives had to give their husbands what she called the three A's, acceptance, admiration, and authority. She truly believed that if a wife did all these things, there would be peace and harmony in the home. It kind of makes me wonder if Roger was always a narcissist or if being constantly placed on such a high pedestal helped make him one. Penny was adamant in her teaching that women needed to keep up with the three A's whether their husbands responded well or not. She taught that wives should always be well-groomed if their husbands were around. Always drop whatever they were doing if he called, and always be available if the man was in the mood. I'm going to just pause right there and say, yikes. This seems to me to be a recipe for a woman to be abused. The book doesn't mention Roger taking any classes on how to love Penny as Christ loved the church, which the Bible says in Ephesians 5.25 is the role of the husband. Instead, he seemed to be staggering toward a stereotypical midlife crisis. He bought a partial interest in a 27-foot yacht, even though Penny didn't care for sailing. He bought a 100-acre farm that he could use as a hunting reserve and a weekend retreat, but Penny wasn't into that either. He also became a pilot and bought a plane that only he got any use out of. Now, I, I get it. It is fine for spouses to have separate hobbies, but I just can't imagine spending the amount of money that Roger did on these things that only interested him. Relatives noticed that Roger's temper was triggered over minor little things that most people would just let go, and he was done with their church asking for more money, so they left and joined a new church. Penny continued to teach her seminars. Roger's mother began to be in declining health, and he wanted her to move into their house so Penny could take care of her. Astonishingly, Penny refused, feeling that she just was not equipped to handle her mother-in-law's serious health issues. Roger was not at all pleased with this burst of independent thinking from Penny. The couple was also at odds over how to deal with their rebellious daughter. The perfect home was showing some serious cracks in its foundation. Roger's work began to cause him to travel more and more, and he was inviting Penny along less and less. She told friends that she had created the perfect home for her husband, who was never around to enjoy it with her. Roger started hinting that their home was really bigger than they needed and suggested moving. A friend worried aloud to Penny that maybe Roger was thinking about a divorce. Penny was adamant that a divorce was out of the question. It went against everything that she believed in. Roger's midlife crisis ramped up a notch. The supremely conservative man bought a full-size motorcycle and started talking about taking up car racing. It was almost as if he wanted to acquire any new toy, any kind of hobby that would keep him away from his home. That desire also caused Roger to take up with a young mistress. She worked at his company, and it wasn't long before the affair became fairly common knowledge. Roger grew a beard and told Penny that the women in his office loved it. How cruel. Roger won a prize at the office Halloween party that year when he came dressed as a biker, complete with bandana, sleeveless t-shirt, and a leather motorcycle jacket with a red, white, and blue eagle with its wings outstretched on the back. Remember that jacket. We'll hear about it again later. Penny came down with a serious illness in 1995 that forced her to cancel her beloved seminars and her church activities. Roger was out of town, and Penny absolutely refused to go to the hospital until she finally just had to They found that she had fluid in her lungs requiring heavy doses of antibiotics. Roger continued to travel for business and snapped that he didn't have time to care for Penny. Her sisters took care of her after she was discharged from the hospital, and Roger told Penny he did not want her coming home until she could take care of him the way he was used to. This was too much, even for Penny. After she recovered from her illness, she convinced Roger to go to therapy with her. No one will ever know if it helped. Because on March 6, 1996, Penny was brutally murdered in the home she'd worked so hard to make perfect. Roger found Penny's body. He said he'd gone back to the office after eating dinner at home with her, and when he returned around 9 o'clock, he found Penny lying in a pool of blood next to her piano. Roger phoned a neighbor who asked him if he had called 911. He had not. Once he did, the dispatcher asked if Penny was breathing. He said he didn't think so, but the scene was so upsetting that he'd had to leave the house. Now, let's be real. If you found your spouse on the floor, terribly wounded, would you leave their side? Me either. Penny's devastated sisters wondered how they should break the news of Penny's death to their elderly parents. When told that Penny was gone, their mother asked if it was a car accident. Their father came right to the chase, saying, It was Roger. Among the people who had interacted with Roger after Penny's murder, several commented on how unemotional Roger seemed. He didn't want to go to Penny's burial. And he told one of Penny's sisters that he was probably going to remarry. And do you remember the leather biker jacket Roger wore to that Halloween party? The one with the red, white, and blue eagle on the back? Roger did decide to go to the burial after all. And he wore that jacket. Right after the graveside service, Roger announced to the family that he was hiring a lawyer. Thanks again for listening and supporting the work of The Unlovely Truth. Remember, you can check out my website, theunlovelytruth.com, and find ways that you can get more involved in being a person of impact. You can join the membership zone and get extra content available nowhere else. You can also follow the links to my store, where we've got really awesome merch And don't forget, soon, I've got a book coming out, so be looking for that as well. Now let's get back to our story. During his first interview with police, Roger wasn't really yet considered a suspect. But because they'd gotten so little from him at the scene, police used their best interviewer to question Roger. He seemed unusually composed but you never know what a person's baseline emotions are. Being stoic might be Roger's go-to demeanor. You can learn a lot from what people choose to say and what they choose not to say. So the detective just asked Roger to tell him what had happened that night. Roger began with dinner. He'd arrived home from work around 5.30, he thought, and after he finished eating, he went back to work about seven to finish up some reports. When he came back home at nine o'clock or so, He parked in the garage and came into the house through the laundry room. Roger then said that he hollered for Penny and went looking for her when she didn't respond. The kitchen still had dirty dishes in it, which seemed unusual for Penny. He checked the room where she kept her piano and found her lying on the floor. It was obvious that she'd been beaten badly. He mentioned that he saw blood running out of her ear, then quickly corrected himself to say the blood wasn't running, but was pooled around her head. Was that just a misstatement? or was he telling on himself? If the blood was still running, he'd have had to have been there right as or very soon after Penny was attacked. He said he nearly got sick from the sight of so much blood and ran to get the phone to call 911. That's not what he told his neighbor, remember? Roger called his neighbor first, and she told him to call 911. Roger then said that the dispatcher made him go check on Penny. Would you have to be forced To check on your injured loved one? He told the detective that it was clear to him that Penny was not alive. In my experience, most people don't want to accept that so quickly. They'll insist that there just has to be something that can be done. But not Roger. To the detective's surprise, Roger launched into his very detailed theory about what must have happened. And in my opinion as an investigator, he was trying to guide how the detective would interpret the evidence that happens so often in 911 calls. Criminals want to control the narrative. And unfortunately, I've seen it work. Roger was worried about what the police might take from his house as they searched it. He asked the detective if he would get a detailed inventory of items taken and if he would get them all back. Who worries about that when their spouse has been dead just for a few hours? After sending Roger home, the detective decided to check out Roger's story by retracing his steps for the night. No murder weapons were found at the house, and if Roger was the killer, he wouldn't have had much time to dispose of them. So maybe, the detective thought, if Roger had killed Penny, he got rid of the evidence at his office. Maybe in a commercial dumpster. He drove to the building where Roger worked, and as he circled the parking lot, he didn't see any dumpsters, but there were three large bay doors around back. It was the middle of the night, so you'd have to check back in the morning. It just so happened that those dumpsters got emptied every morning. But on this particular morning, the big truck that serviced Roger's office building broke down. No replacement truck was available, so the trash would have to wait another day to be removed. The detective visited the building manager that morning and arranged for the dumpsters to be taken to the BFI facility. That's the name of the company that collected the trash. Then they could be searched. He didn't want any of Roger's co workers watching and reporting back to him. The autopsy of Penny's body revealed that not only had she been beaten, she'd been stabbed multiple times, most likely after she was already dead. Her time of death was estimated as being between five and six PM. Now Roger said he'd come home at five thirty and had dinner with Penny, then left to go back to the office around seven. Seems like he was placing himself at the scene of the crime when it happened. Police asked Roger to show them the route that he took from his house to work the night that Penny died. As they drove along, Roger suddenly told them about his affair. His mistress, conveniently, was his alibi. It was now two days after Penny's death. Police began their search of the dumpster at BFI's maintenance facility. It was mostly filled with gray-green trash bags used by the offices in Roger's building. But as the search team removed them, they noticed a trash bag that didn't match the others. When they opened it up, they found thin latex gloves, a metal pipe, bloodstained jewelry, and a carving knife. All of the evidence gathered so far was circumstantial, but it was certainly enough to make Roger the police's number one suspect. Now it was time for the scientists to see what evidence they could find. It's easy to let what we see in the media persuade us that you've got to have DNA to really prove beyond a reasonable doubt that someone is a killer. But did you know that according to this week's book, 10 times more murderers, rapists, and other serious offenders are identified by fingerprints rather than DNA and all other types of crime scene detection combined? Remember that if you ever have to serve on a jury. The pipe and the knife looked like they had been wiped clean of blood. The latex gloves meant the killer had been very careful. Now, Roger's prints would have been all over the house they shared, of course, but not in Penny's blood. What the killer hadn't thought about was the possibility of fingerprints on the inside of the gloves. After their analysis was complete, Tex reported that the blood found was Penny's and the fingerprints were Roger's. Roger was arrested and spent a week in jail before he could arrange to pay for his bail. The community was in shock. Some people thought Roger killed Penny, but others just couldn't believe that a corporate executive and elder of his church could possibly do such a thing. We just don't want to believe that nice people could do such things because that would mean that maybe we could too. I think what it really means is that Roger wasn't as nice as he made everyone believe. Any of us can be fooled if we're not careful. Roger told everyone that he was innocent, but a grand jury indicted him anyway. He sold the house that Penny had so lovingly put together and most of its furnishings. He rented a condo and continued his affair. A witness said Roger asked her to accompany him and his mistress to a swingers convention. Maybe he wasn't the man everyone thought he was. Maybe he never had been. He hired a top-notch legal team, and the slow march toward justice began. Penny had been gone for over a year, and there was still no trial date in sight. Roger, of course, was out on bail and living his life. Having money like Roger did makes all the difference. Just as the trial was set to begin, Roger's mistress, who was going to be a key witness, vanished. The trial got delayed for the ninth time. Finally, on October twenty sixth of nineteen ninety eight, two and a half years after Penny died and Roger was arrested, jury selection began. Media outlets across the country were there, hoping to learn why any of this had to happen. The prosecution and defense haggled over the importance of the affair, whether the DNA had been contaminated, what Roger's eerily calm demeanor meant, if he'd possibly been framed, and if a business executive and church elder was capable of such a brutal murder. The jury thought he was, and they convicted Roger. He was sentenced to 32 years in prison, and under Texas sentencing guidelines, Roger would become eligible for parole when he served at least 16 years. That made him eligible to apply in 2014, when he was 75 years old. It appears to me from a public record search that Roger is still incarcerated. He's now 83. Core TV had a crime series that produced a two-hour special about the case in 1999. And Dateline NBC was able to interview Roger in 2002. He still claimed that he was innocent. A&E produced an hour-long documentary about the case called The Perfect Wife. And that's what Penny tried so hard to be. She had her flaws, like we all do. But she tried to be that Proverbs 31 woman that's a lot of pressure to put on yourself. It helps to remember that the Proverbs 31 woman wasn't an actual flesh and blood woman. In this proverb, King Lemuel is writing about the advice his mother gave him as he searched for a wife. As the king, he needed a good partner to help him carry out his duties. The Proverbs 31 woman is the type of woman Lemuel's mom wanted him to choose as his wife. I want to encourage you, each of us, can function as this type of woman in many different ways depending on the gifts and opportunities each of us has. It's her character, not her career, that makes the Proverbs 31 woman special. Let's look specifically at verse 20 in Proverbs 31 as translated in the message version. She's quick to assist anyone in need, reaches out to help the poor. We all have the ability to do both of these things. And that brings us to our practical action step for today. Now, there's no need to commit to anything big here. I'm just going to throw out a little challenge to find a ministry at your church or in your community that assists victims or groups that are often targeted as victims. Just learn more about it and see if you feel called there. It could be serving the homeless population in your community or foster kids or newly released inmates as they try to get back into normal life. You might feel a tug toward working to help single moms or women with an unexpected pregnancy. You could even see if you could help organize a free self-defense class for women. Your ability to help people in need is only limited by your imagination and your willingness. If you liked today's episode, be sure to check out some earlier ones. I've been so blessed to have amazing guests and they've given me fantastic information that you won't want to miss. And you can also help someone else begin their journey as a different kind of PI, a person of impact, when you share the episode with them. And when you subscribe, give me a five-star rating and a nice review on Apple Podcasts. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neil Cortex. And artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app.